Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli, and I want to give a shout out to all of you listeners out there in 152 countries. Thank you for being a listener. It's going to be an exciting year this year, 2017. Now, granted, there's a lot of change going on around the world and especially here in the U.S. So what will 2017 bring, especially for us real estate investors and people who just follow the real estate environment? Well, today I want to bring on a guest who I've known for a while and I keep bumping into him here and there. He's an author and a real estate guru of sorts. His name is Greg Rand and he's written a great book, but he likes to look at real estate through the policy, political and economic and environmental lens. So he has an interesting perspective on things and I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. But you know, in less than two weeks, we have president-elect Donald Trump taking over the Oval Office. So what will that mean to us? How is that going to change the environment? Well, I really don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows, because I've always said that Donald Trump, although he has a lot of great business and marketing qualities, he's also a wild card. So there's a lot of uncertainty about this new political regime that's coming into Washington. But at the same time, he's a guy who really understands a lot of things about business. And I don't know, you got to look at the tax structure that we have in place and what that could potentially change into. There are predictions out there that home prices will go up. There are comments and suggestions that he will make industry-friendly policy changes that will improve not only the economy in general, but real estate more specifically. And one of those big things that are just floating out there and have been for a long time is the whole Dodd-Frank Act. It's a bill that is just jammed full of regulation. And so if Trump gets in and he is true to his word and minimizes the amount of regulation centered around this Dodd-Frank bill, that will probably ease up on the capital flow. So there will be more capital available for real estate projects, specifically for commercial, but that will flow into many areas of the economy. And If Trump is successful in creating domestic jobs and bringing jobs that have been moved offshore back into the U.S., then theoretically that should be good for our economy and good for commercial real estate and good for residential real estate and good all around. Now, I am politically agnostic and I do not believe that governments create jobs. They sure know how to raise capital through taxation, through inflation, and guess what? Then they redistribute that into areas that they want to put it into, social programs, infrastructure, whatever else, military. But time will tell. This will be a very interesting year. It'll be a very interesting four years with Trump in office. And I am going to keep a close eye on the economic landscape and the housing market and just see how that plays out. Because at the end of the day, I can't control the global economy and neither can you. You can't control the national economy, but what you can control is your own local economy. And if you stay focused on your own personal finances and your personal affairs and you structure a lifestyle that works for you and you create the financial freedom that you really want, which is doable, it's very doable, then you can control something that will benefit you short term and long term. And that's all about your local economy. And my favorite vehicle of course, is income producing real estate. So we're going to get to this interview here in 30 seconds with Greg. So just stay tuned and we'll be right back. 
Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. It's my pleasure to welcome Greg Rand to the show. Greg is the founder and CEO of Own America. Greg is also a leading authority on real estate investment, an author, radio host, and media commentator on the intricacies behind real estate. Greg has been a regular contributor on Fox News, and he's the author of Crash Boom, Make a Fortune in Today's Volatile Real Estate Market, which is a phenomenal book written back in 2011, and I highly recommend people pick up a copy because it's still a great read today. So Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marco. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on. We keep bumping into each other at these real estate events. And finally, I asked you to come on the show and share some of your wisdom and wealth. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So let's start off talking about you for a second here. How did you get involved in real estate investing? And tell us a little bit about yourself so our listeners know who you are. Sure. I'm part of a real estate family. So I grew up in and around the real estate business. I jumped in when I came out of college and that was back in 1990. So I've been in it for a lot of years now. Never sold real estate per se, but ran a real estate brokerage, ran a mortgage company, title insurance company, one of those conglomerates of various services kind of merged together into one. But when technology hit, when the internet hit real estate back in the early 90s, I saw that as a kind of an inflection point, a watershed moment for the industry because it is so information intensive and because the industry was so famous for not giving it up, right? Not sharing the information. If you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was common practice to hide what was for sale from people and make them jump through hoops. And so I got involved in real estate technology back then. And all along my career from that point forward, it was real estate technology and single family real estate as an asset class that was largely underplayed, meaning your audience they understood it, right? And they've figured it out largely by themselves and through the help of people like you. But there wasn't really a professional industry around helping them. Like if you were going to invest in the stock market, there's no shortage of experts. But if you wanted to invest in real estate, there's really no profession designed to help you. And it wasn't until the housing crisis when I finally said enough is enough. There's going to be an investment boom. I've been investing all along the way. But when the housing crisis hit, it seemed as though it was the perfect time that everybody seemed to misunderstand the housing market, except I knew investors didn't. I knew investors were going to jump in during the correction and become very, very active. And so we launched this company back in 2010, 2007 really, but 2010 is when I went full time into it to basically enable a national investor clientele or just a lot of local investors to build portfolios of rentals and build their wealth in this asset class. Yeah, that's a smart move, Greg. And it was a cottage industry. And I think to a large degree, it still is somewhat of a cottage industry. But you took a different path. Although we're in similar spaces in this industry, you kind of focused on institutional investors in the beginning. And we'll get to this more later, of course, but you took a shift and you started focusing more on the entrepreneurial single family residential investor and moved away from those big 10 institutional investors, right? Well, yeah, we didn't actually move away from them. We just needed to add to them. We were part of what we affectionately call the pie eating contest of 2012, <laughs> 13 and 14, when very, very well capitalized companies were buying houses as fast as they could all over the country. We took part in that and developed technology and a field army 
to facilitate that and got pretty friendly with and built a nice reputation in that institutional tier. But my heart's always with the entrepreneurs and some of the things that we and others kind of built on the fly to enable that craze of acquisitions. We've now spun around and said, let's offer these things. Let's take this technology, this data, some of these capabilities that we've developed for this unprecedented acquisition binge, and let's make products and services for smaller investors to help them make the best decisions they can to get the best outcomes they can. So we've made that turn, but we're coming back home again because that's, you know, I belong in the small business this entrepreneurial space. And so we're really excited to be back in that world again. Awesome. Well, that's great. So I've seen you a number of times on Fox News. And here we are at the beginning of 2017. We are less than 20 days away from Donald Trump taking over as president of the United States. There's been a lot of buzz, a lot of talk, chatter, excitement, frustration. People are so polarized. This is not a political show. So it's not about who's better, who's worse, but there are going to be changes. And so Trump's presidency can and probably will impact our economy, our political landscape, and ultimately us, us real estate investors are going to feel those changes and the impact of it. So I think the best place to start is just an overall question for you. And that is this, is with a Trump presidency, how do you feel that's going to affect us as real estate investors? Is it going to be positive, negative? What do you think is going to unfold? Yeah, I think it's going to be positive. I'm pretty excited about what's happening right now. Remember that I'm, I live in the Carolinas now, but I'm a New York real estate guy who grew up in the 80s. And so Donald Trump is a New York real estate guy that began his prominence in the 80s. So I've watched his career the whole time and I've gotten a, a sense of the way that he operates and I'm, I'm enthusiastic. And I put it to you this way. If you pay close attention to the real estate market, the housing market in particular over a long period of time, you know that the housing market thrives on optimism, right? And just like the other way around, when there's a lot of pessimism, it takes a beating, but it thrives on optimism. And people, whether they're investors or homeowners, when they have faith in the continued prosperity of the country, when they have faith in prosperity of other people, one of the tangible ways to play that market is to invest in the housing market. And what I've seen in just the last couple of weeks prior to him even taking office is this, like it started with the announcement of Carrier, the air conditioning company who said they were going to keep a thousand jobs in Indiana. And then today, Ford Motor Company announced they were not going to move and build a big factory they had planned in Mexico. They were going to do it in Michigan, a $700 billion investment to expand a factory in Michigan. And there's been several announcements in between. And what it tells me is that the way that you grease this politician is not by giving money to his campaign, right? Whether you like him or don't like him, this is a very objective point of view. You don't get on his good side. You don't butter him up by making a donation to the campaign. You butter him up by giving him a press announcement to make. You butter him up by allowing him to get on Twitter like he did today and say, Ford is bringing X number of jobs and they're doing it because of me. And so if you don't like him, you might say he's taking credit for something. If you do like him, you might say he's getting credit for something. But either way, something just happened. And that drumbeat, that device that I think he's created here, that companies are going to create jobs and credit his policies. They're going to save jobs. They're going to bring jobs back. Big corporations across this country, they have divisions, departments called government affairs, okay? And government affairs usually is around lobbying and influence and trying to get close to the right people and getting your point of view represented in Congress and in in the White House, et cetera. They're now realizing the way to 
cozy up to the federal government is to create jobs, save jobs, et cetera. And I think that if we see this continue to happen, you're already seeing the impact on consumer confidence. It's way high right now. I saw some stories over the weekend when I was catching up about consumer confidence being the highest in 12 or 15 years. All of that stuff accrues to people's personal confidence and it accrues to their decision to want to invest in anything, but particularly real estate, because it is so, I mean, you're literally, we, we named the company Own America, Marco, right? That I believe that owning single family real estate is the closest way to own this country as you can get. Absolutely. Because you're sheltering families, family growth, population growth. The chorus of the fundamentals of this country's economy is that. Sure. Family creation, household creation, and shelter. So I like it for that reason because I think all boats rise, and I, I think it's clear already the tide is rising, and it's not by accident. And the reasons why people are feeling good right now are tangible and are likely to continue. Well, real estate is a very significant component of the overall productivity or GDP of this country. And so you have to almost protect and preserve the housing market in order to keep the economy of this country intact. One thing about Trump, which is interesting, and I'm politically agnostic, I don't consider myself Republican or Democrat, but you know, Trump, what you were saying before is he's not been paid for and bought off by corporatocracy. He is not a career politician. He's an entrepreneur and he's a real estate mogul. And that's kind of refreshing from my perspective to have someone who's got a marketing and entrepreneurial and sales and marketing mentality you know, in the White House. So I think it'll be positive for real estate and for real estate investors. Time will tell. I mean, politicians say one thing and often do something else. But I think if he's staying true to what he said, and he just does one third of the things that he's talked about, I think we'll see some significant boosts to our economy. Now, having said that, you can look at the economy short term and long term. You know, he's been talking about tax cuts and controlling government spending in the form of upgrading, you know, the nation's infrastructure and cutting back on other things. What do you think this will lead to in terms of economic stimulus short term? Do you think it'll boost things short term? I think it already has and he hasn't even taken office. But where do you see the next, let's say, 12 months? Uh, that's a great question. I think I'll go back to that announcement by Ford CEO today. And I thought it was really interesting that the reason he gave, you know, he made a very short statement. And the key sentence that made it into most of the reports that I read was that it was the economic policies that they're putting in place are making it a better environment to do business. In other words, he didn't say, and this could just be spin, but he didn't say he's canceling his plan to open a factory in Mexico because he doesn't want to get tariffed to death. Okay. And he, was, he doesn't want to get bullied. He said that lowering corporate taxes, investing in infrastructure, creating jobs, it's going to become a better place to do business. And therefore, the reasons why they were leaving have been diminished. You know, based on a statement like that, I'm a big believer in encouraging people to take risk, encouraging, creating an environment where people feel safe enough to go out there and put their money and their sweat equity in play to try to create wealth for themselves and for their families. I haven't loved the idea that creating wealth for yourself was actually something that people were starting to talk about as being shameful of late. I never got that. So I no. I think that people going after the brass ring, being excited and feeling like the future is bright again is going to pay dividends. But also you mentioned something important. This is a real estate guy and we've never had, I mean, if I was in technology, I am in the technology business. If a, if a high tech CEO took over, I would assume without knowing anything else that it's going to be good for the technology and innovation right. industry. This is a guy that understands the physical asset. Don't think for a second that we are not as an industry of investors, we still get talked about like landlords, you know, like, yeah, yeah. landlords <laughs> are villains, right? 
these poor tenants didn't pay their rent. They got evicted by the evil landlord. They didn't pay the rent, right? There is a stigma associated with real estate investing that some people still think of it as something that you're always capitalizing on somebody else's pain. You're buying a foreclosure, so therefore there's this bad karma associated with it. Right. And you're the evil landlord pushing the rents up and all that kind of stuff. So we were always concerned, I have been concerned, that regulators would look to make a name for themselves by making it hard. And I've heard a lot of stories at the conference when you and I last saw each other. I was talking about several people that said in places in Missouri, in Chicago, there are really harsh local regulations sticking it to landlords, requiring inspections in between tenant turns, fining them, yep. charging them fees for the inspections, just getting in their way. And you think about what could be done on the federal level to make it harder to borrow, put limitations on investors. It just seems to me that it's very unlikely that a guy like Donald Trump is going to see landlords as a blight on society. No, <laughs> you know not I mean? at all. Not at I all. think he's going to see them as what I believe they are. I believe that if you own rental property and people live there and they have a good experience and they're able to stay a long time, you take good care of them, take good care of the property, you're a hero. That's right. You're doing the right thing. And so whatever regulations we might have seen are so much less likely to ever come about with a guy like him in the front. Yeah. A large percentage of the housing stock in the US are rental properties owned by landlords and, and businesses and institutions. And the fact is, is our philosophy is to provide safe, clean, functional housing for people. And so when we talk about a tenant, we think of that tenant as a customer, not just a tenant, they're a customer. So we're providing them a service, a safe, clean, functional home to live in. And in return, they're paying us as a customer what is effectively rent. And so most people are that way. It's those few quote unquote slumlords that really become that bad apple. And it's what people end up talking about. They don't talk about the 99% of the other landlords out there that are providing good quality housing, affordable housing for people. But Greg, you mentioned um, two things. You mentioned tariffs and you mentioned Mexico. And so this is actually something that has me concerned because increased tariffs would lead to a decline in U.S. imports and exports. And historically, that has led to recessions and job losses. And when I hear job losses, I get concerned because when you look at job losses within a local economy, that is the number one red flag that indicates a potentially declining market where property values go down, the market softens. Do you foresee see an increase in trade tariffs that, I mean, Trump has been talking about that, but do you see an increase in trade tariffs? Will he actually do that? And what would the fallout be on that with real estate? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I read something some time ago that struck me, somebody who was trying to explain Trump and his supporters and his detractors. And she wrote that Trump's detractors take him literally, but not seriously. And Trump's supporters take him seriously, but not literally. <laughs> so taking, taking that is he going to, does he need to apply a 35% tariff on a factory, on a business trying to get things back in the country again? Or is the threat of that already paying dividends? Well, we're seeing it paying dividends already with the thing we already talked about with Ford. I think that he knows or his advisors know, and we'll make sure that he knows that you could cut your nose out to spite your face here. Yeah. That if you create a, a trade situation like that, there's enough meat on the bone with the trade deficits, which I, by the way, knew nothing about until he started talking about them. But then there's a lot to read on the subject. And it looks like we've been getting the raw end of the deal in a pretty big way. That there's enough to do that doesn't involve punishing American companies who have gone overseas that he's not going to be punitive. I'm hoping. So yeah. I don't know. 
I don't know, but I, I'm hoping there's enough good that's going on and it's not going to be a, it's got to be a hundred percent. I have to get everybody back. I have to get every employee back from overseas. I don't think you can possibly have that no. goal in mind, but just changing the tide. I'll give you an example. Okay. Imagine you ran a company or I ran a company that, you know, it's not huge, a hundred employees. Okay. A thousand employees. And I have government contract or there's a government contract that I want, but I have no employees that I moved overseas. So there's nobody that I can bring back. I have no plans to move them. So there's nobody I can keep in town. I could always find a company to buy and save. I could, I could find vendors of the five vendors that I buy this material from. This is the one that's having the most trouble. I'm going to buy them and give them more business and I'm going to save 35 jobs. And I'm going to then give that press release out there and give him credit for it again, as this way of buttering up the federal government. Companies here have lots of ways of getting in good favor. So any company, a company who's got a factory in China or Mexico or both, doesn't have to move those people back to be able to still do things that are going to get them some leverage, some appreciation. Like, don't kill me with these tariffs. I'm going to open up a factory. I'm going to open up a line of business. I'm going to buy a competitor and save them, whatever. There are ways to creating jobs. It's like American workers have become a special interest group that if you do something good for American workers, that's a chip that you can cash in to maybe get yourself out of hot water for having a factory in China. You follow me on that? Yep. Yep. So I'm hoping there's enough that'll keep it so they don't do anything stupid and actually harm the economy as they're trying to help it. Time will tell. I think they're smart enough to realize the impact of putting trade tariffs in place. What was interesting to me is I watched the election on TV that night and, you know, it was kind of slow going and dragged on and on and on. But I fully anticipated the stock market, like the Dow, to drop the next day. What was interesting is it actually dropped considerably overnight, almost 900 points. And I thought, okay, well, I was right. But the next morning, to my shock and horror, the market was up almost, what, 200 points or something like that. So we're seeing these amazing stock market gyrations. And it's been going on for a long time. It's not just recently. Recently. But, you know, Wall Street is cheering because they feel that there's going to be less government regulation. At least that's, you know, the anticipation. But at the same time, they're frowning because there's going to be restrictive international trade policies. My concern here is that if this all comes into play, there's going to be even larger and more frequent market gyrations. Now, that could do one of two things. It could take capital out of the stock market and funnel into real estate, which is what I expect it to do and what I hope it will do. But maybe the opposite is true. Maybe there's so much positive expectation and optimism in the stock market that people are still going to, like lemmings, follow along and keep pumping more and more and more capital into the stock market. So what do you think will happen and what will the implications be for real estate? I think there's definite potential that volatility in the stock market will cause a flight to real estate. And I think this time in history right now, it is easier for people who are already committed, like your audience, to the sector to be able to do more, better lending products, more ways to buy, more ways to buy in more locations, better property management in several states away. There's a lot of innovation that's come about in just the last few years that's going to enable maybe a pent-up demand to flow into the asset class more. I know that there are more vehicles for people to buy into real estate now. For example, there's a half a dozen publicly traded REITs that exclusively own single-family homes now, so you could spend 20 bucks and buy a share of a single-family home portfolio. There are more ways to grease the skids to get more people to do it, where just a few years ago, 
the numbers of people in surveys that believed in investing in real estate but didn't do it were pretty enormous. And the reasons why they didn't do it is they were like, how do I do it? And where do I get the money? And right. I, I don't know who's going to help me, right? And the answers weren't all that great. Your audience has figured this out with the help of each other and people like you, but not a national real estate company with offices in every town. That should have been. <laughs> right. All these years, it should have been that you'd walk into a real estate company, prominent, reputable real estate company, and talk to an expert and be able to get all the help that you need, but you never could. Volatility, I'm not sure there's going to be volatility. Maybe it's going to be a nice steady climb. But we did see, if you recall, back in, in 2001, we were a couple of years after the tech stock bubble, which freaked everybody out about the stampeding nature of Wall Street and the stupidity of Wall Street sometimes to just buy into stories and then make stupid bets. But also we had 9-11 and I was running a real estate company in the suburbs of New York, pretty good sized real estate companies in the New York metro area when that happened. So we had the double wham where we had all these Wall Street jobs that were going away and then we had the terrorism attacks. After a couple of months of a deep freeze where nobody was moving and nobody was doing anything, the real estate boom of the early 2000s kicked off and we immediately felt that it was a flight to tangible Right. Give right. me away from Wall Street. And it had the added benefit. You know, it was home ownership that was surging at that time. That's the way people understood how you put your money in real estate. But it was a flight to family, a flight to backyard barbecues and the things that are important in life, but also a flight away from putting your money in somebody else's hands. Yeah. So I always think, you know, it's what the beauty of this asset class is the duality of it that you've got. If the economy booms, your prices are going to go up. Your values are going to go up. Your rents, if you buy early in this trend, your rents will grow also. If you're buying later in the trends, your rents may not have kept up, and so your yields might get compressed, but you win. You win on the value of the property. If we're all wrong and everything goes the wrong direction and, he, and Trump puts 50% tariffs on every product coming into the U.S. and the economy hits the skids, well, then rental household creation is going to go through the roof and we win again. The dual nature of a house, is it an owner-occupied home, thereby driven by equity growth, or is it a rental that may otherwise be driven by rental growth? We get it on both sides. And I think people are going to see that the more transparency and the more professional our industry gets sharing the truth of how the housing market performs, the more it's going to make sense to more people and they will move capital into it. Yeah, I, I think we stand to gain regardless of what happens because there's been such a shortage of supply for many years now that the demand for it is pent up. And we're starting to see, especially in the tier one cities, a lot of construction. Hopefully it's not over construction. But I, I think builders need to catch up to the delayed and growing demand that has been growing over the years. And everything you said was correct. And I will add one more thing to it. In the 2000s, a lot of the so-called investors, and I say investors in quotes, were really nothing more than speculators because interest rates and credit was free flowing. A lot of people were actually buying property with the intention of flipping it or selling it in a very short period of time. That was like in one to two years and then just taking a capital gain. They didn't really want to keep it for the sake of cash flow. Yeah, they weren't improving it either. They're just right. riding a wave up. But right. people need to remember that before, you know, people remember the housing bubble. But it's important to note that in 2002 and three and four and five, there was a genuine housing boom driven by optimism and inflamed by crazy lending practices. And it ended up flaming out. Yeah. Okay? But it started out as something real. And that realness was people's desire to own more housing in the U.S. Yep. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good point. So before we got started recording here, we just briefly mentioned the Dodd-Frank bill. The issue I have with Dodd-Frank is the regulatory burden that it brings on. But if we take some of that away, we give smaller banks the opportunity to put out more loans and boost building activity, which is still somewhat tight today. You know, credit is flowing, but it's not like it used to be. What is your feeling about Dodd-Frank? What do you think will happen with it? How's that going to affect us going forward? Well, it sounds like there are already bills that the Congress has passed and put in front of the White House over the last several years. They've been very active in the Republican Congress passing bills that went nowhere. And what I've been seeing, and again, reading, is that they're backlogged and they're not going back to the drawing board. They've already vetted these things. They've already crunched the numbers and they're going to put them. They're jostling now to figure out which ones of these literally, I think, hundreds of bills that have been passed throughout that stack of bills is pulling elements out of Dodd-Frank. There's also repealing it altogether, but pulling elements out of Dodd-Frank that are getting in the way. I mean, I know people in the mortgage business, a lot of them, and the amount of energy and cost they had to incur, and you don't see any discernible benefit. When the borrower's paperwork goes from a quarter inch thick to two inches thick, I don't see who benefits from that. <laughs> They're not reading it. So right. I do think that Ben Carson in charge of HUD is going to be interesting. He has no experience in housing. He has experience in inner cities and in education and, of course, in medical, but I'm hoping that the FHA is going to go back to what it used to be, right? The original subprime, low down payment, questionable credit. The original subprime was FHA, and then subprime became you know, part of the for-profit mortgage industry. And I'm hoping that I'm seeing signs that the FHA is going to be active and aggressive again. And I guess that's good because it is government insured. And as long as it's not regular mortgage banking entities and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that are doing it, it's a government insured entity that's doing it. So it's got a place. Sure. And so, you know, the regulation, what I hope they don't do, but I pray they don't do is say, we need to get home ownership up again. And the only thing we can think of is to make lending easier, make agree. borrowing easier. If, hopefully they won't do that. And that's where, you, you know, the dotted line back to Trump as a real estate guy, you have to believe he understands that that's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah. There's some other creativity. Right. Yeah. And I think everybody agrees with that. That's actually one of the things I want to ask you because credit, I mean, depending on what kind of credit, but credit has been still relatively tight for mortgages. But do you see that loosening up? I mean, you can only loosen it up so much until you get back to the you know, levels of stupidity. Yeah. And you know what? I was a loan officer in the early 1990s. That was my first job. And I look at the underwriting standards now, and even when they were tighter just a couple of years ago, and it's like it was back then. I mean, you have to have a job and prove it, okay? You have to make enough income that a third of your income goes towards your debts or no more than that. Uh, you have to have a down payment and demonstrate that you can save up a down payment. You have to have been paying your bills on time. And if any of those three things are weak, the other two have to be strong. That's the way it always used to be. They put all this emphasis on credit scoring, but the way it used to be when underwriters manually underwrote files, if your job is good and your income qualifies you well, but you have a lousy little tiny down payment, we got a program for you if your credit's okay. If your credit's not so good, put down 30%. If yeah. you can't prove your income, put down 30%. That's kind of where we are right now. And the 90s were a reasonably healthy real estate market. So I don't feel like it needs to get a lot looser. I think if people's job situation improve, if their income grows and if their confidence grows, if they take an extra two years to get mortgageable under today's guidelines, I'm personally okay with that. Well, it, it comes down to affordability and qualification. Can you afford it? Do you have the income to afford it? I mean, credit, you can have a very high credit score and have no income. Right. And, you know, if you're getting a mortgage, well, that's a mistake. You know, we can't have those ninja loans anymore. Ninja, for those people who don't know what it is, it's no income, no asset 
that no job. And for years, back in 2006, 2005, we were giving out tons of ninja loans. Not us, but mortgage brokers. And that doesn't work. But, you know, you talked about government-sponsored entities, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. You know, they made so many bad decisions in the past buying up subprime mortgages that they just became, you know, a floating time bomb. I don't know what the future is of these government-sponsored entities, but do you think they'll survive? I think in some form. Again, I you know, I hate to want to go back to the past, but if they operate the way they did back in the 90s and in the very, very early 2000s, they were good. What they did is they gave rise to the mortgage banking industry. They allowed an entire industry of lenders to go out there with a pretty standardized product and compete for the borrowers and make money easily accessible, but they were the gatekeepers. Right? There was always this knowledge that there's a loan officer in the front who wants to sell the loan. There's a realtor who wants to sell the house. There's a borrower who wants to buy the house and get the money. But there's a guy in the back office who doesn't care about any of that. <laughs> He's the underwriter. He's the nerd who controls or she who controls the purse strings and he or she is not corruptible. When they took that away, I mean, I was in the mortgage business in the 2000s also when all these lending standards were getting thinned out. And I remember saying out loud, wow, this credit scoring thing is amazing that they can basically throw everything else away. And as long as you hit a certain number, and I I was going on the false belief that they knew what the heck they were doing, (laughs) that they had actually done all this, that it wasn't just a drive to put as much capital out as humanly possible. So I like that those entities exist yep. so that there can be a robust, it isn't just community banks figuring out what they want to loan and when, that there's a, a pretty much an endless supply of mortgage money, so long as the people responsible know that they have to make loans that the appropriate percentage of them are going to get paid back on time. Yeah. Yeah. There's too much faith in the FICO score and that creates problems. Yep. Last Trump presidency question I'm going to ask you here, and then we'll wrap up with you, is about tax reform. You know, there always has been a lot of talk about simplifying the tax code. And, you know, you can trim mortgage interest deductions and reduce property tax deductions or cut exemptions on capital gains from the sale of a property or your principal residence. But I don't know if that's good or bad. Do you expect tax reform? And will that be a positive thing for us as real estate investors? Yeah, I think so. I do expect it. He's saying he's going to do it. They're all saying they're going to do it. Simplification is good reducing them across the board has been shown to be good. I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there who say that they look at it as if you're cutting taxes, you're somehow spending money without the realization. There is so much pent up entrepreneurship. There is so much pent up growth in businesses who have been keeping their powder dry, right? Some of the same people who lament tax breaks are just gifts for the rich are the same people who then get mad when the rich hoard their money. It's like they're doing that because of the uncertainty and you've got crosshairs on their back and they're basically, they have the ability to hoard the money. The corporations do, the people do, and the combination of deregulation and tax cuts, we've seen it in the past, it's worked in the past. And I'll give you another example of that. People remember the bust of 2008. But my view on that, I remember the fear of 2001 and two. And we didn't know what was going to happen after 9-11. And again, shortly after the tech stock, but we didn't know what was going to happen. And I think that the government doesn't get enough credit. The policies of the early 2000s don't get enough credit for helping us pull out of that. I mean, it was an amazing thing that we had an economic boom three years after, two years after 9-11. We had an economic boom when nobody knew if anyone was going to leave their house again in 2001. Now, they let it go too far. They fanned it and fanned it and fanned it until it bubbled up, until everything went sour. And that, you could say, also happened in the 1980s. You know, Reagan came in, large tax cuts, deregulation, 
economic boom, but then everybody gets addicted to the economic boom and they don't put the brakes on when they should. So we had a correction in the late 80s and we had a little stagnation there at the turn of the decade. So I'd like to see us remember that second part of the lesson. Let's do the tax cuts. Let's do the deregulation. Let's let things get really hot, but then let's cool them down. Let's do whatever has to be done to make sure that we don't flame out again and go through one of these 10-year cycles where it booms and then busts again. So I'm optimistic about that as well. Yeah. I think we need to have more of a free market where we're not jimmying the market up and down with all these different levers because the market is self-healing and self-correcting, but we're not allowing it to do that. And that's my belief. And I don't know where you stand on that, but- We're on the same page with that. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm optimistic about what's to come this year with a Trump administration. So I guess uh, maybe we'll uh, get back together here in a year from now and, and see you know what predictions have come true. Okay. Let's wrap up here. We started talking about it before, but just to wrap up with you, you had changed your business model from working with you know the institutional investors, what you call the Big Ten, to more of the larger entrepreneurial, single-family, residential type of investors. Why did you do that, and where's that going to take you? Well, thanks for asking. We, yeah, we were hip deep in that institutional trend, and we had nine of those ten companies have been clients of ours throughout this process, and we had to create some things for them and with them and with other partners and other vendors in this space that are good for everybody who's investing in real estate. They're really good. It's clarity, it's data, it's professional management techniques, it's technology, professional management systems. These things have been invented on the fly. And many of us, we're definitely one of them. There's another dozen companies I can name that have taken their institutional product set and skill set and repackaged it for every investor in the space. And so our product, ownamerica.com, is investment management technology. We allow owners of a portfolio of one rental home to as many as they have to open a free account, enter that property address in or upload a spreadsheet. And we've taken all that data on price appreciation and the yield calculators and projections and maps and pictures and employment growth and population growth and migration growth and all those things and packaged it in what we call the portfolio visualizer, which allows you to, for free, track the value and test assumptions and change the calculators and see the way the future projections change based on those assumptions. And then periodically, we send you updates on the valuation changes that our data suggests. And we give you the opportunity then to say, hey, I want to sell some of this or I want to buy more like this. And we're matching up owners. So owners of portfolios have the opportunity to be introduced to each other to create a private marketplace so that if you did want to sell your portfolio, you'd be able to do it without advertising it on Zillow. So your tenants won't find out until you're actually in contract and and making the sale. It's a way to make smarter decisions, to see your portfolio in a more clear way than maybe you had before with the benefit of some institutional quality data and technology. And then a marketplace to buy and sell property. Cool. I didn't know you had that. You told me about it today and I went to your website and I think I need to play around with it. So if uh, anybody listening wants to go check it out, it's ownamerica.com, right? Yeah, that's it. Great. Greg, I appreciate you coming on. You're a wealth of information. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't? No, this was great. I really appreciate it, Marco. I think that what you do by putting your effort into trying to bring content to the audience, and these are people that I have a big heart for. I consider real estate investors to be neglected by the industries of real estate. If it weren't for people like you, they'd be really alone in the universe. Yeah. And so I'm really happy that you do what you do, and I'm really happy that you, I know you 
protect this audience very closely. And so it's a compliment that you let me come on board and, and talk with them. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So as far as people reaching out to you, is uh, your website the best way to get a hold of you or your team? Yeah. Okay. You can Own email America. me at greg at ownamerica.com, G-R-E-G, or go to the website and we're right there. Okay. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Awesome. So Greg, thank you for being on the show. And uh, as a reminder to our audience, his book is Crash Boom. It's a great book on Amazon. So if you can pick it up, grab it, read it. It's a good read. Thanks for being on the show, Greg. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.